Well, today we're finishing up our series in the book of Romans. I, I hope that you enjoyed it as uh, much as I did. What a great book. And uh, next week we're going to start our series on Joshua. Great time to get into a, a small group. And I uh, hope that you'll sign on and, and join us for the next six weeks. There's going to be some great life application uh, from this book. So if it hasn't become obvious to you yet, uh, one of the main reasons that Paul uh, wrote the letter to the church at Rome was because there was a, a real need for unity. There were two very different cultures, maybe more, but at least two very different cultures in the church, and it was really threatening to rip the church apart. Uh, one group were the Jewish converts to Christianity, and they came from a very conservative background, especially around the issue of morality. Uh, there was 613 laws in the Torah that had to be obeyed. Uh, their religious upbringing would have been very different from their pagan Gentile neighbors. They had been taught since they were babies that there was one God and one God only. And um, they had been taught that, that they were God's chosen ones. And they would have grown up in a, in a kosher uh, kitchen and would have taken place in all the Jewish festivals and, and, and holy days. They would have attended a brie and, and understood that circumcision was the entranceway into the covenant community. Growing up um, in Rome as a pagan would have been very different. Uh, every Roman household worshipped uh, spirits. and They believed that these spirits protected the family. They were called a lar. And, and, and regular sacrifices, the families made regular sacrifices to honor that family spirit and to make sure that it watched over them. Even trees and rivers and, and buildings uh, had their own spirit called a Newman. And as the empire began to grow and, and as more and more cultures were assimilated into the empire, these different cultures brought their own gods. So there was this whole pantheon of gods to be worshipped. And of course there was no um, separation of church and state. The government encouraged uh, the worship. And so there was religious devotion everywhere. At their religious festivals, uh, sacred meals were, would be held in the name of their gods. It was believed the god actually took place actually was with them in this meal, and so a, a special place would be set for the gods at the dinner table. Animals would be sacrificed in the name of that god, and then they would be eaten by the worshipers. And so Jewish citizens uh, would never, ever eat meat sacrificed to these idols because to them that meant they were participated, participating in the worship of that god. And sometimes that made it very challenging to go to the butcher shop and find meat that hadn't already uh, been sacrificed to these Roman deities. Now, the Roman gods did not demand morality as, as the Jewish god did. And, and, and the, in fact, the gods themselves were not moral. Uh, approval from the gods was quid pro quo. Uh, I'll do something nice for the gods, and the gods are obligated to do something nice for me. And so these two groups in the church at Rome came from very different backgrounds, very different worldviews. But the only thing they shared was kind of a distrust for each other. And figuring out what the Jewish traditions and practices would be retained in the church caused enormous problems. And in Acts 15, uh, it almost split the church before it got off the ground. You may remember the story. Paul and Barnabas are leading this incredible revival in the city of Antioch. Uh, but they, 
they ignored a cherished 2,000-year-old tradition. They did not make the Gentile converts become Jews first through the rite of circumcision. And so some Jewish Christians came up to Antioch. They began teaching contrary. They began saying, no, circumcision is necessary for salvation. And it resulted in a big argument. And um, Luke writes in, in uh, chapter 15, it says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So it was a big deal. Um, it was a knockdown, drag out fight. So Paul and Barnabas, they head down to the church headquarters in Jerusalem and, and to consult with the church elders and to find out, you know, what are we going to do? They told them stories of what God was doing about this incredible revival in Antioch and all the hearts of the church elders were melted. And James, the leader of the church, he stands up and he quotes from the prophet Amos and shows that it has always been God's place to include all people, all tribes, all nations, all cultures in God's mission. And um, he says, let's don't make it difficult for the Gentiles to become believers. And the church began to move forward. You see, part of the reason that Jesus died was to break down the, the barriers that divide us from others. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, he says, For Jesus is our peace in his flesh. He has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility uh, between us. And so Jesus didn't just die for the sins that, that separate us from God. Jesus died for the sins that separate us from each other. Paul is arguing for reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, but folks, we can apply that to any situation. The case can be made for every group, nations, communities, leaders, families, even our friendships. In all of these situations where it appears that reconciliation is impossible, Jesus shows us another way. So how did Paul go about trying to keep the church in Rome united with these differences? Well, if you have your Bibles, open to um, chapter 14. I'm going to start reading verse 1. Uh, if you have your smartphone, your Bible app, you can open that up as well. Both of those are the Word of God, right? So this is how he starts off. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So Paul encourages us to, to cultivate this attitude of acceptance you see, Anderson Hill's church is a church where people are growing into the likeness of Christ. But guess what? Most of us aren't there yet. What, what draws people into church? It's love and acceptance. I think that's what most people in our community are looking for. And so the church that accepts, appreciates, and affirms people is the church that God's going to bless. You see, absolutely nothing can stop the church that is filled with love. But it doesn't happen accidentally. You see, every single Sunday, people come to this church for the first time, and whether or not they're going to choose to come back in a large degree depends upon who? The preacher, right? That's not great sermons? <clears throat> it's upon us. Yeah, it's us. Think about it. How did Christ accept you? He make you get all cleaned up first and looking good and all that? He accepted us 100%. How do I know? Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, for while we were yet sinners, what? Christ 
died for us. So Jesus didn't say, gosh, I, you know, well, she's really nice, and uh, I think I'll die for her. He didn't, he didn't look at somebody and say, you know what, he's a really nice man. I think I'll die for him. Oh, for everybody, all of us. So how can we treat people any different? Wouldn't it be great if Anderson Hills was known as a church that accepts unconditionally? I mean, I think God can use that kind of church to spark a revival that can change the spiritual climate of our city. But how do we handle our differences? How do we handle our differences in beliefs? Paul talks about two kinds of people in chapter 14. There's the weak and the strong. I'm going to read verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. So who are the strong in faith? Those who eat anything. Who are the weak? What? Come on. Only vegetables, right? See? That's why I eat meat, okay? Yeah. Okay. It's in the Bible. I'm sorry. It's there. But he goes on. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. So the strong ones are those who aren't worried about eating meat sacrificed to idols. They're not worried about observing special uh, holidays or festivals or feasts or whatever, what day to worship. Paul considers him in this group. He is in this group that doesn't care about all those kinds of things. The weak, he says, are those who had concerns over meat, sacrificed to idols, making sure they still observed you know, the Sabbath and those kinds of things. And he says those are the ones who only eat vegetables. But the thing is that Paul isn't really concerned about the weak or the strong. He doesn't really care about that. What he cares about is the attitude in the church. And so he writes, don't argue over disputable matters. What kind of matters? Disputable ones. Now, the Greek word here is adeophora. Sometimes it's translated as opinions. Paul says, don't quarrel over those. Yeah, some things are right because the Bible says they are right. Some things are wrong because the Bible says they're wrong. But some things the Bible doesn't speak of. These are matters of conscience. He says, don't argue over opinions. And we all have our opinions, don't we? Opinions are important. That's okay. He's not saying don't have opinions. He's saying don't fight over those things. For example, the Bible clearly promotes truth-telling and condemns lying, right? That's clear. But what about lying to keep from hurting somebody? You ever done that? No, dear. That outfit looks great on you. Really? I've never done that. But I know other men who have. You know, some people um, believe the Bible clearly teaches against the use of alcohol. Other people say, no, it doesn't. These are disputable matters. You could think lots and lots of them, lots of those things. But it doesn't just apply to what's right and wrong. We can also think of the disputable things of the faith as well. Uh, in other words, beliefs. Um, on, and, and Christians can have differing opinions 
on those and still be within the realm of orthodoxy. Things like the nature of the rapture or predestination versus free will or whether it's possible to lose your salvation. We've been arguing about those things for 2,000 years, you know. Probably never going to agree on those. Those are the disputable things. But on the other hand, he says, there are the essentials. Those include doctrines such as the deity of Christ or the Trinity or um, salvation by grace. And Paul says those are the non-negotiables. And there were people in the church of Rome that were trying to deny the essential doctrines. And so he writes in chapter 16, verse 17, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. He says, keep away from them. So in other words, to deny the essentials was to deny the faith itself. Uh, right now, we're, we're beginning to teach our small group leaders in, in a class called CORE that, that helps them to identify what are the essentials, what are the opinions, the, the disputable things, and then how do we talk about those disputable things without arguing about them. So Paul's saying, extend liberty to those who believe differently. Those are the non-essentials. The non-essentials are the non-essentials. Now, he's not saying they're not important. They are. I mean, everything in life, all circumstances in life, the, the ordinary as well as the extraordinary, these are all opportunities for you and I to exercise obedience to Christ and to be careful how we treat others. But the tricky part is this. It's determining what are the essentials and what are the non-essentials. And so we have a temptation to go one way or the other. Either we reduce all the numbers of doctrines to be taught and believed to what we can all accept as important, and then we get down really, really small and ignore the rest, or we go the other extreme and we break ourselves up into smaller and smaller groups that uh, agree with us, and then we denounce everybody else as, as a heretic. Paul says this. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God and whoever abstains, that is from meat, does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. And then he kind of takes it up a notch and he says, for none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. What Paul is teaching is that in these disputable matters, each person must be firmly convinced in his or her own mind. That, that is, that we honor the Lord when we know that what we are, when we're fully convinced that we are acting in obedience to God's will. And then he says, after that, that we just commit everything with thanksgiving. That's really, really important. Paul says that two or three times in, in just those couple of verses. He says, with thanksgiving. So there's a sense in which thanksgiving kind of sanctifies all of our actions, however outwardly different they may be. Even the simplest of, of, of actions or deeds are dedicated to God through thanksgiving. So we have to have unity in these things that are essential and, and then toleration to those things that are non-essential. For the Roman church, it was over food, special days for us. It could be a plethora of things, whether we sprinkle or immerse in baptism, whether we believe Christ is, is spiritually present or physically present in, in, in the uh, 
in the Lord's Supper. It could be over politics. I mean, you could go on and on. Lots of things that we disagree over. But see, those are not the essentials. I, I, I can go to heaven never having been baptized. I should be baptized, but I could. Or I, I, I could never take communion and still go to heaven. I could be a Republican, still go to heaven. I could be a Democrat, still go to heaven. Because those are not the essentials. The essentials are faith in Christ. That's what saves us. Well, now he's going to drive home his point. And he says, hey, none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to ourselves alone. So he's talking about body life here, about community life. He says, when we profess faith in Christ, then we are united to one another in the church. We call that the communion of saints, that we are members one of another. We are family. Um, William Ernest Henley wrote a, a famous poem. He says this, it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But Paul would say, no, that's not so. Christ is the captain of your soul, and we're all part of this thing called humanity. Now, we as Americans, we love our rugged individualism. Nothing wrong with that. We like to think, I can do it all on my own. I don't need other people. And while there are a few people who can live that way, most of us, we need others, don't we? We do. God designed us that way. God designed us to live in community, and we have this need to belong. And the, the moment that you are welcomed into the church, you belong to the church. These are your brothers and sisters. And baptism is kind of the sign of that entranceway. So we don't always act like it. I mean, let's face it, relationships are hard, right? Relationships are hard in our, in our families, let alone in the church family. It's hard. We have to work at it. It doesn't come easy. And we're not perfect. And since we don't become perfect the moment we come to faith in Christ, guess what? Sometimes we Christians can display an ugly side. A man was deserted, uh, was, was stranded on a deserted island. And he was there for a couple years, and he would see ships come by in the distance, but he could never flag them down. They never saw them. And, you know, he was afraid he was going to live there for the rest of his life. And then one day a fishing boat came pretty close to the island. He was all by himself there, and, and he jumped up and down and screamed, and the skipper of the, of the fishing boat saw him, and he stopped, and he pulled up. And, uh, and the guy was so glad to see him. You know, finally, I get to go home. And, and the skipper said, hey, well, tell me about those three huts that you've built here. Well, he said the first hut is... That's my home. That's where I've been living these couple of years. Skipper said, well, what's that second hut? He said, oh, he said, that's, that's my church. That's, that's where I worship. The skipper said, well, what's that third hut about? And the, the guy there said, eh, kind of sadly, he said, you know, that's the church where I used to worship. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? But Paul says, we don't live to ourselves. We're connected in community with each other. And we learn to live in love with one another while dealing with those differences, those non-essentials. Paul says this is the more excellent way. See, I think people are looking for community that is real and genuine. A church community that has your back. A church that is there for you in the good times and the tough times. And I think it's about trust. A place where I can be real, where I can be transparent, where I can be authentic and humble with other people. You see, we, we need others. I've said this before, but, you know, living in community, I mean, you guys are like sandpaper to me. You're sandpaper. In a good way. Because you help rub off my rough edges. 
I, I could live as a hermit and think that, I, man, I'm really a faithful Christ follower because it's pretty easy when you're by yourself, right? But it's when you have to live with others that, that you, you see, I've got a ways to go yet. God's not done with me yet. And, and why that hurts and why I may be tempted to do the easy thing and leave if it, gets, if it becomes painful, if I am trusting, if I trust you, and if I'm humble enough to allow another person to speak into my life, and if I'm willing to open myself up to accountability, especially in my small group, for my behavior, what begins to happen? What happens? Christ begins to be formed in me. And I begin to change. Because it's in community that, that I'm perfected. It's in the process of doing life together that we discover just what kind of progress we're making. Well, Paul's not done yet. Verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put away any stumbling block or, I'm sorry, not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of another brother or sister. For I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. He's talking about the, the meat sacrificed to idols. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're not acting in love. Again, there's this whole idea of community. Rick Warren says this, whenever I judge another believer, four things instantly happen. I lose fellowship with God. I expose my pride and my insecurity. I set myself up to be judged by God, and I harm the fellowship of the church. Wow. I don't know about you, but I need to make some changes in my life to do a better job of learning how to build people up rather than tearing them down. I find it baffling, really, to know how anyone can hear the story of Jesus dying in our place rescuing us from our helplessness and have, have it produce any kind of arrogance or pride. I mean, instead, I'll do just the opposite. I'll provide humility. Or, and if it doesn't, I don't think we have a clear understanding of the gospel. So we need to learn how to live in, in the tension of using good judgment but not being judgmental. And there is a difference here. Being judgmental does not mean people should do whatever they want or, or not face any consequence. It's about imparting wisdom into someone's life, but that's not the same as judging them. So we need to understand that the opposite of sin is not virtue, it's grace. And, and we should know that because our, our, our lives are flooded with it every day. Some sin is more visible than others, but, but we all do it. So I have no right to judge anyone, Paul says. It's my job to love them and then point them to the love of Jesus. Love is the opposite of judgmentalism. It, it tempers our views. It tempers our attitudes. It tempers our, our, our overreactions. A lot of people will say, well, love has no agenda. But yeah, I think love is the agenda. I think Jesus teaches that. So oftentimes, I come to the wrong verdict because I only look at the superficial stuff. And I come to the wrong conclusions. God's judgments are they're perfect. Ours are not. And it's typically out of my own biases, my own assumptions, my own stereotypes about others. You know, I, I make judgments about people instantly, the way they're dressed. I see the way somebody's dressed, I make an instant judgment. You ever do that? I mean, I see somebody with a sweater vest on, I think, there's a person of impeccable uh, character, you know? 
You do that too, right? You make judgments about how somebody's dressed. I remember one time I was um, interviewing a person, and I asked him about their work day. And he said, yeah, I, says, I, I usually start about 10 a.m. And, of course, my, my first thought is, I mean, I'm a morning person. My first thought is, eh, lazy. 10 a.m., who gets up at 10 a.m.? That's lazy. And then they told me, yeah, but I, I work till 2 a.m., and it changed my mind. See, Paul drives his point home by pointing to Jesus. Chapter 15. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself. What's Paul saying here? It's not about us. It's not about us. The Christian life is not what I get out of it. We're not here to be serve but to serve our neighbors jesus died on the cross for us and he didn't do it for any other reason i signed up to follow jesus and so i have to behave as jesus behaved and you know what he never insulated himself from other people's pain he sure didn't keep to safe places he he was engaged with those people who were crushed by their mistakes and their bad choices he wiped away the tears of prostitutes. He, he held the hands of, of those who were wounded and sick and crazy. He hung out with the not-so-perfect people of the world, and he showed them what, what faith in God was all about. He was never concerned about a person's title, about a society name tag, or the sign on their place of work. He had no, he had no place for cliques. None of those things meant a rip to him. So here's what will happen if we follow Paul's advice. Chapter 15, verse 5, we find this, Paul, this prayer of Paul. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind, one voice, unity in our diversity. I think that a church that has unity is a church that God will bless. So let me ask you, how are you doing on this one, friends? Can you begin to allow God to, to melt your heart? Allow him to deal with that, some of that junk inside? Can you, can you begin extending a hand to those people who are different from you, who have different opinions? Can you do that? Can we commit ourselves here at Anderson Hills to be, being an authentic community of faith that welcomes those new people when they walk in the door? Can we do that? Let's pray. God, we confess our, our tribalism. We confess those times, God, when we've looked at somebody in superficial ways and we've made those instant judgments and we've been wrong. Only you judge with perfect judgment. God, help us to become that authentic community of faith here. Give us a vision of what life can be like in community, real life. Remind us that the heart of that is the fact that you've accepted us for who we are. And how can we do anything different? Hear this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.